welcome to Syslog. This is our 10th episode. We can't really believe it ourselves. Uh, 10 episodes, wow. <laughs> um, we also have our first recurring guest today, uh, Michael. Uh, he was our guest in our fourth episode where we talked about contact tracing apps. And today he returns to talk uh, to us about scheduling. But before we come to that, Julian, I heard you've done lots of Rust. Have you rewritten sudo in Rust yet? <laughs> uh, it would be time. I think uh, people use like 1% of the functionality that actually is in uh, sudo. So um, whoever rewrites it in any language that has no buffer overflows, uh, um, go for it. Um, yeah. Uh, yes. Michael. Would highly appreciate. Michael, uh, so. <laughs> hi. Um, hi. Uh, Funnily enough, we actually wanted to talk about the topic we're going to talk today, last year, uh, and then you happen yes, to be and in then this. Something happened. And then you happen to be in this other topic that dominated the news, which we shall not talk about, um, because it is going to be over very soon now. So we're coming back to the actual topic that we wanted to talk about, which is uh, scheduling. My first question that I had from research, um, since neither of us is a native speaker, is it? Scheduling or scheduling? Oh, that's a very good question. I have no idea. I think both schools exist. When I visit real-time conferences, I think they say scheduling more often than scheduling. But you hear both. I have this feeling it's a it's an English uh, dialect yeah, it, thing. Yeah, it's yeah. I somehow in my brain I somehow associate scheduling more with more with cockney accent <laughs> gangster gangster <laughs> operating systems to scheduling <laughs> um i see the episode title so, right there um the i think in, so we could talk about sh scheduling and and be more sophisticated today ah. <laughs> yeah i think in my in my usual generic international english that uh, me and my surroundings yeah. speak i think it's usually <laughs> scheduling so um, what made you look into scheduling? So how did you end up being the resident expert? So yeah, that, it's a long story. And it actually, yeah, it's probably because I'm, I'm reasonably old now that I started working with computers at a time where they were not fast enough for everything you throw at them. And especially at that time, I was, so it was in the, yeah, probably somewhere around the late 90s, uh, multimedia was a big thing and you wanted to watch videos on computers. And that didn't really work well. So I had a DVD drive and I could play DVDs. And this was, I think the machine was a 400 megahertz Pentium 2. And there you really needed to pay attention to that the CPU was doing the right things at the right time. So the frames would actually show up at reasonably smooth on the screen. And that was sort of when I got interested in the larger topic uh, of, of scheduling, because yeah, I realized that it's sort of important that your, your system does what needs to be done at the right moment and not something else which is not really important right now. And somehow there seems to be, yeah, 
sometimes there seems to be a lack of knowledge on the part of the system of what is important right now. That's true. Uh, for the younger people, uh, DVDs are these uh, uh, glittering frisbee-like things that uh, your parents have at home somewhere. Yeah. Well, we still have Blu-rays, so they are the thing that we had before Blu-ray. Sold off, yeah. So, um, I, I, so we all met at the operating system chair in Dresden at the university. And when I joined, um, I think you were uh, close to finishing your PhD. Uh, but you already yeah, did about that, yeah. you did scheduling things before. So was that the thing that you started uh, as part of your um, what you would now call master's thesis? Or did you already do some things before? Yeah, so it started with the what was back then called the Beleg, which would now probably be something like the bachelor, even though we still have diploma and it's also still called Beleg. Yeah. So it's an undergrad thesis. Uh, and I basically sort of, I mean, don't tell anyone, but in my, in this undergrad thesis and in my master and in my dissertation, I basically did the same thing over and over again, <laughs> <laughs> which was how to make video run smooth. And yeah, looking back now, I probably wrote that dissertation at the right time, because if I had wrote it any later, then the problem would have been a bit laughable because I mean, it's not a problem today anymore, really. So yeah, it started really early and I stuck with the topic somehow. But now, I mean, you've, I mean, this has been like a no, 15 years, probably. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So, um, how do we how do we start now? I think we have we have to sort of introduce the topic a bit. Um, so, why is this actually hard? Yeah, because we don't have infinite resources, I guess. So we have limited amounts of CPU time. Even though scheduling is actually broader, so we don't just schedule CPUs. We schedule all kinds of resources like disk drives and network packets and I don't know even your GPU is probably scheduled somewhere but yeah it's all because you have too much too many processes wanting something from a resource and you need to somehow sort them in time and that's usually what we call scheduling so I guess it's in the end it's because time is such a funny resource. It's it's one of the few resources that we can actually experience as humans sitting in front of the machine. I mean, you don't you don't really experience how much CPU your system is using or you don't experience how much memory your C system is using. But you can experience how much time it's using. So th this is probably because time is is a bit different than some of the other resources that get managed in systems. And then, I mean, especially in, in those modern devices where, where you have touch screens, it's probably especially hard there because you need like close to sub, sub 10, below 10 milliseconds. You want to get actually closer to one millisecond of, of latency for screen updates because then it still feels like when you scroll that the content sticks to your finger. 
and if it's slightly off, that if there's a delay, then that's immediately noticeable. So that's that's. I'm an Android user. I don't experience this. <laughs> okay. Uh, <laughs> but that's but how it fair, should be. <laughs> but to be fair, it has gotten far better on Android as well. But yeah, this is true. So um, so so what is so you said what, what is the time uh, that people perceive as instant? Um, usually, it's said to be 10 milliseconds and shorter. I think good musicians need something way lower. Uh, because then they realize that when they push buttons on electronic keyboards and the sound comes out, that there's a delay. Uh, but for us, I think it's something around 10 milliseconds if you have like something moving your mouse cursor or scrolling on a touchscreen. And then when you click and you want a reaction, that's more like 100 milliseconds. Then you think somehow nothing's happening. Then you start feeling a disconnect between your click and the reaction. So that's sort the, of the... This is the Electron app uh, experience. Yeah. The, this is for people who know Def Microsoft Teams. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so um, maybe let's come to some, some basics in terminology. So what are, the, what are the bits and pieces we need to know to, to talk about this, this topic? So for scheduling, there's actually a lot of theory. Uh, it, it goes way back. Uh, it goes even back beyond the time where computers existed. So originally, scheduling came from f factory floors, managing of, I think, something like maybe assembly lines. So when you push, push things through different plant stages and you want to get high throughput, so uh, one of the most important terms, I think, is utilization. It's how much of my resource am I using? So how good am I at saturating my resource? Uh, and usually this, you want this to be high. Uh, at least if there's some work that you could do, you want it to get done. So you want your resource to stay busy uh, if there's work to be done. And that's why you usually want high utilization. Um, but what's then also important, of course, is, is, is latency, is the time from when you put some work in to the time it's finished. Uh, sometimes also called make span. Uh, they have all subtly different definitions, but that's probably not really important here. But uh, so that's also something you can, that, that's important. Uh, and the two are sometimes at odds. And that's probably what makes this all such a messy problem is that getting high throughput or good utilization of your resource uh, and getting low latency, so short amounts of time until stuff is finished, uh, for the important pieces at least, uh, this can sometimes be conflicting goals. And then you need clever algorithms. And that's essentially where, where all the scheduling work comes in. Can you can you come up uh, with a, a small example where these things uh, actually collide? Um. Um, so what what you usually do, or one strategy you do when you want to get high utilization, is you pipeline a lot. So you do things in in stages and you put queues in between. So for for processor, for example, of you would have a queue of work 
so that there's always work that it can do. And even when you have multiple processors, you want to have a lot of items in that queue so that the processors can pull from the queue and never be idle. Um, but then when something important comes along and you don't know that it's important, uh, or your scheduling algorithm is too stupid to care about the fact that it's important, then you would just enqueue it at the back, just like every other job. Uh, and then it needs to wait. And if the queue is long, because you wanted good throughput, you never want your calls to be idle, so you have a long queue, uh, you enqueue it at the very back, and then it needs to potentially wait until all the jobs in front of it have finished, and then it's, it's, it's time. So you get perfect utilization, but quite bad latency potentially. But on the other hand, if you want the short latency, then you have no queue. So that whenever you have something that needs to be done, it gets done right away. But that also means if there are small times where there's a gap uh, in between your work, then your processors are immediately idling, which would be compensated if you have a queue. So that is sort of one way to explain why the two can sometimes conflict. I, I also remember, so very early in... Um in my studies, um, you start with um, job scheduling, like the 1970s um, style of computer scheduling, uh, where the, the jobs are like batch jobs, which I imagine in my head, I've never seen it, like stacks of, of uh, punch cards that are slowly fed to the machine. <laughs> and some system has to decide which program, which stack of punch cards to consume in what order. And um, yeah. I think... Um, there I always uh, had this, uh, so I think the, the immediate problem that, that, um, my naive mind back then saw was like, okay, if you optimize for throughput, you want to the most jobs done in the shortest amount of time, you, you of course choose all the small ones. Um, and yeah. then you have lots of jobs being finished, but, uh, the poor person who has the big stack, um, of punch cards will, uh, wait, just wait forever. And um, depending on what metric you optimize for, your system either looks really good uh, because you get lots of stuff done or really bad because the one person had like an incredibly long, potentially uh, unlimited uh, latency. Yeah, so there's another, another important thing in scheduling, which is fairness, uh, which some algorithms consider. And yeah, such a situation where just because you have a long job, you need to... Uh, you're kind of at a disadvantage that can be considered unfair. And cons depending on which metric you use for, for your fairness, but yeah, that's also something that some algorithms try to improve. So, so for me, this looks like there's like a rich field of theory. And then there's lots of people that just wing it. Um, yeah, exactly. So it's, it's actually, you can even, and that it's, this is a bit of a problem as well. So you have the, the really deep down theory folks. They have their own set of conferences even. Uh, the papers have a lot of symbols that are weird to look at. So they use lots of math mode in their tech. Um, and they rarely build any code, any systems. 
So they really just think about the algorithmic side and they make mathematical proofs about it and they, they show some properties and they, they uh, extend it to different task models and, and different uh, ways of modeling uh, application behavior like blocking times and worst case execution times and all those things are theoretical uh, ways to understand how software works. And then they yeah, make nice proofs and, and form theories. And then there's the community that actually builds uh, systems, uh, schedulers for real systems. And there you usually, it's far too complex to apply the theory because the theory assumes task models that are very often, yeah, your task just simply doesn't fit the model. So you have to have like band-aids and corner cases and you need to have heuristics and deal with real-life applications in the end. And then sooner or later you throw away the theory and just build something and you just invent some heuristic that seems to work nicely. And so you have really, you have the systems community and the theory community and both kind of have scheduling in their portfolio but they kind of work in different directions. So they don't really, yeah, I mean, they don't really talk to each other that much. Even today, the two communities largely visit different conferences and there are separate disjoint groups of people there. It's very rare that you see someone in a systems conference and then also later in a real-time conference. So there are maybe like three or four groups that do that, but... Most of them stick to one to one of the groups. And that's probably not good because you tend to reinvent the wheel as well. So the theory community tries to also build systems, uh, which then kind of look strange sometimes because you, yeah, they start with the theory and then they want to stick to their theory and then they kind of bend the system in a way so that it fits their theory. And that they can still prove something, but it, you end up with a system that is very gnarly and complicated and not really practical. And then on the other hand, the systems community, they try to also then build systems where they can prove something. But it's usually also very, it's very fishy and sketchy sometimes. And, and yeah, you need to kind of also bend your code so that it fits the fits what they want so it's really i mean it's hard to make a system yeah so it's probably not the fault of either group but it's it seems to be hard to make a system that is both practical and has a and theoretically sound so you kind of we haven't solved that yet you you always get one or the other right now so and maybe that's also fine in some areas. So some areas you you just need the, the fundamentals, you need the formal formalisms because you want to build a system that is very critical, uh, where people rely on the fact that it schedules correctly. Uh, and then you want to make the proof and you want to have all the theory, but then yeah, you need to be aware of the fact that it will be very limited in its applicability. And for our actual systems that we use every day, it's fine if you can't prove anything. It's, it works good enough anyways. 
This is maybe a good point to to introduce the distinction between uh, real time and not so real time because you sort oh. of implied it in in your answer. Uh, you have systems that that can kill people if they if they perform poorly, and systems that don't. Um, yeah. So that's definitely true. So we have this distinction between it's often called. Uh, hard and soft real time or then there's also a category called best effort scheduling so hard real time is the real time where you really want to meet all your timing requirements so you have a, a use case that requires something to run uh, in certain time intervals for example so it's some control device in a in a I don't know, in a reactor or in some chemical plant or something, uh, and it needs to open and close a valve in certain intervals, and there's a little microcontroller where software runs that does that, uh, or, and it needs to raise an alarm if something happens in time and, and things like that. Uh, and there you really want to have a system where you can prove, mathematically prove, that this will always work correctly. Of course, given that the hardware doesn't break and things like that, but given all of those physical underpinnings, then you can actually take out the papers from this research community, uh, apply the right task model, and then find the right paper that shows you, okay, if I do this and that, and I, I stick to those parameters, then my system will actually always behave correctly, and it will always finish the things it needs to do in time. And But that's that means a good thing. Like so, for example, the, I think I read one paper where they talked about um, engine control, where you have uh, need to uh, read some sensors and send some control output every ten, so like ten times per second, and you really, really need to do that, otherwise, uh, otherwise bad things happen in the engine. So, yeah, and cogwheels fly around, and... <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> or like Stuff. the the more in my. <laughs> In my mind, it's also like the like a big industrial laser that's sort of <laughs> moved around, and then um, it has to it has to have like motor control. And if they mess this up, it just lasers some some technicians around them. So this is my mental model of hard real time. Yeah, that's a. I think that's that's a good model. I mean, it's probably less dramatic most of the time, <laughs> but those cases definitely exist. So you have you have real time systems and things like. Uh, uh, airplane engines, for example, that's a that's a big area. Uh, you have it in cars. You have it in, um, yeah, in all kinds of control systems. Nuclear power plant, probably level control system. Uh, there you have real time. There you have these kinds of hard real time systems where you really need to pay attention and it really needs to work. Uh, and it's fine that this is will be a limited system. So it's fine that you can't start and stop tasks randomly driven by some user uh, because this is just not necessary there or not even desirable. So can you yeah. give some example how this actually so like for a really simple uh, real time system, how this would look like for a developer, what, what they would have to specify? Yeah, so for developer, so what you first of all, once you have written your code uh, and you have thought about its its requirements, so for example, it needs to run every 10 milliseconds. Uh, and so you start it every 10 milliseconds and it needs to finish within within five milliseconds, for example. So you, you figure out those parameters. Uh, 
and then um, you need to also determine your execution time of your code. So most of these scheduling, no, not most, probably all of them, they require that they know how long things take to execute. Uh, for that, of course, you need to know what hardware you're running on. Uh, and then you need to somehow figure out what the worst case is. So what the longest execution time is your code could, uh, could run. And there already the problem starts, so you need some hardware which, where you can actually figure this out. So it needs to be simple enough so that you can actually figure out how long your code will run in the worst case. So and running it on x86 is not a good idea? No, for those kinds of systems probably not, because yeah, you would have to apply a huge safety margin <laughs> to be on the safe side, probably. Yeah, I think for, for the... Uh, for for the non uh, nerdy people in the audience, I think that the, so the the reason is that there's lots of caching involved to make an x86 CPU fast, and there are corner cases where you c that you can construct where none of these caches provides useful answers, and then the CPU will be extremely extremely slow. And uh, this is just not really predictable. It's just like in most cases, it's really really fast. It's just in some, it's not. Yeah, it's just an optimization for the average case, but not for the worst case. And yeah, as you said, in many cases, it can even make the worst case worse, actually. And so, okay, you need to figure that out. So you know your worst case, what's called the worst case execution time, the WCET. That's something you hear often in real-time lingo. Um, so you know your periods uh, and you know your execution times. Uh, and with that, the, one of the easiest algorithms that you can use is an algorithm called EDF. It's called uh, earliest deadline first, uh, which means you internally in the scheduler, you always run the thing that needs to finish the earliest. So as the name implies, earliest deadline first. So whatever has the closest deadline, that's the thing you will run, which is something that we even do in real life. So. You probably didn't know that the algorithm is called that way, but uh, that's a scheduling algorithm that you can use. Uh, and it has the interesting property, which has been proven in ages-old papers, uh, that if you take all your periods of your tasks and all these worst-case execution times and you divide them, so for each task you form uh, the uh, execution time divided by the period, And this is called the utilization of that task. So if you think about it intuitively, uh, if you have something that needs to execute every 10 milliseconds uh, and it runs, for example, for two milliseconds, then the, uh, this ratio is two divided by 10, uh, which is 0.2. So this means that this task will have a 20% toll on your CPU. It will use 20% of your CPU bandwidth, so to say. And the property of EDF is that uh, as long as the total utilization of all the tasks you want to run is below 100%, then this will always work. So you can load your CPU up to 100%, which is the maximum it can take anyways. Uh, and then uh, as, as long as you stay below that, Uh, then your your task set will always finish all of its jobs in time. So that sounds pretty good. Um, 
why would I use anything else then? Yeah, EDF is a good algorithm. It's probably not the most easiest to implement. So there are some that are even easier to implement, but they have less nice behavior. So they can sometimes not schedule up to full 100% load. Uh, and then, I mean, for simple tasks and, and simple systems like these control systems, this is probably good enough and this is probably all you need. But the problems start when you have multiple CPUs, for example, then this is no longer that easy because uh, you can't just do EDF across two CPUs and expect to reach 200% utilization. Um, that unfortunately does not work. Uh, and then also problems start when your tasks do funny things like waiting for other resources. So they have interdependencies or they block on some resource. Uh, this is, these are all things that are not expected in the original EDF task model. So things you typically do all the time when you write real world code is that you use some input and you wait if it's not there. Uh, those are things you can't do in a real-time system, uh, uh, at least not if you want to uh, keep the properties of your proof. Uh, so then you either need more complicated theory or you need to leave the land where you can prove something. And also your application has to fit the, the mental model of being a periodic control loop. Yeah, that's true. So as, as soon as you have something that can arrive at any time, uh, then things also can get more complicated. I mean, if you know um, a minimum distance between the arrivals, then you can still use that as the period. Um, but if you don't know that, so if things can come in really at any point in time, uh, then you sort of have a problem because then you can have bursts of arbitrarily high load in theory. And so you immediately cannot prove anything anymore. And, and the other very practical problem is to uh, how, how to figure out the worst case execution time. Yeah, so, so I... on, on complicated code and on real life processors, this can be a nightmare. So what you usually do is just measure a lot. But that's not really safe. So for some certification levels, that's not good enough. For some, I think it is. But for the highest ones, you need you really need to do an analysis and really show like instruction by instruction if you go through your code. And for each instruction, you know how long it can take at the maximum and you add it all up and you figure out what the longest control flow path is in your code. Uh, and then you add up all the instructions there and that's your sort of analytically derived worst case execution time or at least it's an upper bound for the worst case a safe upper bound for the worst case execution time then you can use that but the true worst case is probably always something that you will never completely find out either you will have a safe upper bound that could be way too high if you have bad analysis tools or complicated code Or you just measure a lot and then you might end up below your worst case execution time and at runtime things can still fail. So that sounds to me that you end up with systems that uh, either use very simple hardware where your estimations, uh, where, where your upper bound is not too far away from, from uh, what is actually used, or you use faster systems 
but then your worst case execution time estimate is has to be so high that the system is usually pretty much idle um, because you have to to uh, account for the fact that the worst case exe uh, execution time is 10x of of what it usually takes yeah so, that's true yeah it's um, true so that's and, and that's also usually the, the point where you leave real-time scheduling and you just schedule things in sort of a soft real-time or, or best effort way uh, so where you can just where you just tolerate some some missed deadlines uh, and and you just uh, have systems where this is hopefully not a problem what would be examples of these systems Yeah, and this would be something like the video player uh, in your system or, or your, your set-top box or whatever, your Netflix player. So, uh, systems, so systems where it's probably annoying uh, if, if, it's, if it doesn't work out, but where nobody dies, basically. Exactly. So where the certification requirements are not that high or not existing then you usually do some hopefully good job, uh, but you don't need to prove anything and you don't need to fit your code to some complicated or not complicated, but limiting task model. Um, and then you end up in a world where your scheduler just, there's no proofs, there's usually no parameters or no worst case execution times. You just throw things in your system and it uses some heuristics to do the best job it can. And, and this is basically the only thing you can do on x86 or any any sufficiently complicated CPU. Yeah, I mean, you can still try and be clever and tune your heuristics so that it has a better idea of what's going on. Uh, and you start to sort of like infer back some parameters that your application might have. So you might figure out whether something is more important than something else, uh, even though on those systems, usually there is no API for, for developers to express the relative importance of the work they have. Maybe you have some crude notion of priorities or of, of like the Unix nice levels um, where you can somehow configure that, but uh, then the system will have its own idea of what it thinks, what is important and what is less important, and then kind of try and use that information to make a better decision. I wonder how many people under 30 know what nice levels are um, <laughs> on, uh, on Linux. Um, But they're still so, there. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not even sure they make a difference these days anymore. Um, the, I think... But you said so the, the system tries to figure out what's important or not. I think the, what happens on, on like developer systems is that, let's say you're listening to your uh, favorite comfort noise on YouTube. So uh, thunder, um, thunderstorm with uh, sounds of forest, I think is something I enjoy. And at the same time, you compile Firefox like I did when we started uh, recording and the system has to be smart enough to figure out that uh, compiling firefox is something that it can defer and i will not notice but um, um, uh, deferring some audio frame rendering is something this will be very very annoying to me and how does this even work so did it work 
um, reasonably well, I would say. Okay, so it seems to work more often than not these days. At least that's my experience. Uh, but yes, this used to be a problem. So actually, that that was one of the reasons why I started this whole business. Is as soon as you started some larger computation job like compilation or some some rendering or whatever in the background, and you wanted to play audio or even let alone play a video uh, at the same time, this would completely go 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 bad. So you would have stutters and crackles and just because the system wouldn't be able to tell the difference of what is important to you. It wouldn't know that, uh, as you said, the, the audio, it should better not delay uh, because then, yeah, immediately some, some dropouts occur, but the, the computation or the compilation of the code in the background, which is mostly computation from the point of view of the CPU, it could delay, but it doesn't know that. And so it uses the system uses some heuristics in order to figure out what it can delay. And one of the most important heuristics, I think, is that as soon as tasks do more I.O., so they block more often on I.O. devices, which is something that the system, and in this, in this, uh, uh, in this instance it's the kernel, uh, it knows when you do system calls uh, and it can track whenever you block on one of those uh, system calls. So for example, you do a read from uh, your sound uh, uh, source, whatever that is, it might be a network. So you do a, a read from your network uh, device, from your network interface, and that blocks because it takes time for stuff to arrive. And then you do a write on the audio output and that blocks also maybe because there's something still playing. Uh, and so the kernel can keep track of that. And whenever you do that often, uh, it internally registers you as being more important. Because the heuristic is, if you do lots of I.O., you are more important. And if you just compute, which means the CPU just runs but doesn't do a system call, it doesn't enter the kernel, and it doesn't block there, uh, then you somehow are deemed less important. And that's a heuristic that works quite often. It probably doesn't work always. You can probably construct pathological examples where it doesn't work. Uh, but in this case, it seems to be working because your compilation probably is more compute heavy. I mean, it does some I.O. when it opens all the header files, for example, then there's I.O. going on. But apparently the, the regular I.O. of the audio probably is more... Uh, yeah, twists the system's idea a bit more so that it thinks, okay, this seems to be important. I better run that. And, and compared to the um, hard real-time model before, this is like a bit of a, yeah, this is like best effort. No one, uh, no program tells the kernel, like I'm the audio threat and I'm going to need uh, X hundred thousand cycles every um 20 milliseconds or so the kernel has to infer all of that and on the other hand all the programs just do whatever and uh, usually just this works out fine exactly so there, there's research actually going on whether you could uh, propagate more information from the applications into the into the scheduler um, because i mean yeah it tries to infer essentially 
it tries to infer parameters that the developer might even know, but on the commodity systems, on the non-real-time systems, uh, there's typically no interface to express that. So all you have is maybe the nice levels if, if you want to use that, but they're not very fine-grained and not very uh, precise, so probably not going to have a very good effect using those. Um, and so all that remains is that there's just no interface, no one expresses anything, and the kernel needs to do guesswork in order to figure out again uh, who is how important and who wants how much time from the system so that in the end everything sorts nicely. Uh, and yeah, that, that you, this is probably a playground where you can try out different ways of doing things. So either you have fully black box heuristics where the kernel just does these things like track I.O. and track how often you block, uh, or you invent some new interfaces where you can actually propagate some information into the kernel. Um, yeah, and that is currently going on. And that is more happening in the systems community than in the real-time community because... Still, so, you so, can't prove anything. Um, when you say um, non-black box heuristics, uh, so my system's idea would be I, I'm just looking at the process name and if it says something with Chrome and uh, the, the window title says Netflix, this is probably <laughs> going to be <laughs> video decoding. And I have this feeling that somewhere in the operating systems, uh, there are probably these kinds of hacks. But um, I guess this is not what you mean. This is not what I mean. But now that you say it, I vaguely remember that there were systems that did special things for the X server, special scheduling things. So they, they had hard-coded the binary name of the X server and would actually do something if they recognized that this binary was running. But I don't remember the details. I do remember reading the Windows kernel internals book and it had uh, it, it described the Windows scheduler heuristics um, with foreground windows and background windows. So if you have an application, okay. so on Windows, the whole windowing system is some, somehow baked into the system. So the, the system knows what, a, what application belongs to what the window. So it can actually make a decision based on, am I actually looking at this right now? And, uh, but when I, when I read that, this all sounded very hacky. I mean, it's an interesting signal that you might use for good purpose if, if the, most, the front most window is somehow more important to the user. And I think some applications nowadays do that sort of themselves, that if they recognize that they are not foreground anymore, then they somehow throttle down frame rates of some stuff that they're showing some animations or things like that but that's also not really scheduling that's just yeah that's just hard-coded trickery i mean you can do that if it helps fine but it's not a it's not a general solution it's not a general interface that applications could use to improve their own behavior but this is also something that becomes important in uh, energy efficiency so if, if your browser keeps rendering important, uh, expensive animations, even though it's not visible, so this means that my phone will, uh, that the battery will not last or my laptop battery will not last very long. 
Yeah, that's true. There's a, there's a large overlap between energy saving or energy management and scheduling. Those go hand in hand very often. So what, uh, what, so what we're talking about right now is sort of the, the view from, um, let's say, yeah, 15 years ago, um, you have like one core in your system, maybe two, but uh, the world has, has like radically changed. So the, the laptop I'm recording this right now has 16 hyper threats past me would have totally uh, stood there not believing that this, this is going to happen. Um, but how, how do you see, how has this changed the whole landscape of, of solutions? So is there anything radically new happening uh, since we saw this explosion of, of concurrency? So I think that there should be something happening, uh, but there hasn't. Um, and I think some other people agree uh, because there is ongoing research in this area uh, because multi-core scheduling is sort of a complicated problem if you want to look at it from a real-time perspective. So if you want to look at it from a, what can I prove and what properties can I construct so that my system uh, yeah, has some, some formal underpinnings to it that I can exactly tell what it's doing at what point in time. This gets even harder and it gets even NP complete uh, when you have multiple cores. So it's a bin packing problem. Exactly. And a lot of the a lot of the algorithms have really bad uh, utilization that they can achieve if you still want to have guarantees. Uh, so there are some algorithms that are better, but they're also quite complicated and have high overhead. So it's not a nice situation there from a theory perspective. So from a theory perspective, there's still a lot of work to be done. Uh, and on the other hand, from a systems perspective, um, we have, at least in the commodity systems, we have largely brought the existing schedulers along into this new era of many cores. And this is probably also not optimal because those schedulers, yeah, they, they can move things around between cores whenever they think that that's beneficial. But that is, uh, on, the, on the cores themselves, this can become very expensive because uh, you suddenly lose all your cash working set because you leave the cash behind on the other core. You can't take the cash with you. Uh, you need to repopulate the cache content on the new core if you get migrated. So those migrations can be quite expensive. Um, and what you actually would want is that you would start to have systems that schedule in space more than they schedule in time. So that don't just chop up all the work that you have into fine pieces and evenly smear it across all your cores but that, that actually take the compute intensive threads that you have and put it fixed on one core and let it finish there uh, and have all the, all the little things that are going on when you move your mouse and when you press a key, uh, those can timeshare on one core maybe, uh, but the really important compute things, uh, you want to actually place them on cores and have them stay there. Uh, and that is something that is still 
I guess also ongoing research in the systems community of what the right model is and how applications could could use such a such a scheduler. So as a, as a user, as a Linux user, I see this has improved. Um, so the stickiness of of threats to CPUs. I still remember uh, all the HPC vendors patching, like lobotomizing the Linux scheduler, so it wouldn't move stuff stuff around like like a like a headless chicken. Um, but now these days, if I look at my laptop uh, with the many hardware threats, and I start one application that is compute heavy, it sticks to one core for a really long time. Yeah, this has this has gotten better. So the heuristics are improving. Uh, Especially in Linux, you see, you see, because in Linux you can see the work that's going on in the scheduler. Uh, in the other systems, I would guess it's happening as well. But but yeah, in Linux you have the advantage that you can see all the changes. Uh, there is definitely a lot of a lot of stuff going on. The heuristics are being tuned uh, every now and then, and they are adapted to the new hardware situation. They're not fundamentally different, uh, but yeah, their behavior definitely improves. So I guess on those HPC systems, yeah, they, they, they do that less often now. I would hope that they change stuff in the schedule. Uh, can you give a bit of intuition how this actually, um, how the multi-core scheduling works? So in my, um, in my uh, naive worldview, you have like one tiny scheduler for each core that does like local decisions. And then there needs to be something that Uh, decides to move um, to, to evenly balance the load across the whole system. So how, how does this actually work? Yeah, this is this is exactly right. So the trend is definitely going to these hierarchical scheduling systems because of the different costs involved. So because uh, if you move something between cores, this can be more expensive. Uh, whereas if you start and stop things on the same core, This is less expensive. It's also an overhead, but it's not as bad as moving things around unnecessarily. Uh, and so you have these two layers. You have per core run queues uh, in the scheduler. And there's a local per core scheduler that just has a local timer interrupt. And then uh, an every timer interrupt would look if it needs to change what is currently running. Uh, based on how much progress it has made and based on how much progress all the other threads that are currently uh, loaded on the same core uh, have made. And then yeah, it does a fairness decision in the end of who gets to run next on that core. And then you have an overarching system that pushes and pulls threads between those local run queues. So whenever it detects that some core has too much going on, Uh, and others have too little, uh, it will start to even out the load. So this is sort of how it works. So, I mean, the extremely naive solution would be to have like one core doing scheduling for everyone else. Is that a thing? Mm, I think they all do it individually right now. Because if you would want to do it cross-core, you would have more, more inter-processor interrupts, more APIs. And you also um, have like the, the one serializing. Um, so it's, this is like the one bottleneck you basically built into your system. So it cannot yeah. scale. Um, so I think the most common construction is that you have these individual per core schedulers and then you have some push and pull mechanism uh, that moves work between the cores 
at a more coarse-grained fashion. So not, not as often as the local scheduling happens, uh, but at some point, if there's too much load on a core, it will move it over. So, but this is, so this is sort of the system level, but um, what, what I noticed in programming is that um, there's like this slow shift away from thinking about threats and, and starting more to think in tiny work packages. Uh, and having a runtime system that that dispatches this in in a hopefully a good way, and you see the systems popping up. So uh, you mentioned in the notes that we prepared that uh, there's like this this macOS thing, the Grand Central Dispatch. But basically, you see these um, systems popping up in all languages and and on all systems. So what what is your opinion? So why why is this actually uh, a better way of writing so, the application. Yeah, it's so this has sort of started, I think, in the whole programming language community and in the in the community that tries to organize concurrency and code. Uh, that it seems to be not so convenient and very error prone if you program threads directly. So if you manually start and stop threads and you manually distribute your work across those threads uh, this is this is a very low level way of thinking and this makes thinking about concurrency yeah quite complicated and so the better or a better model uh, could be that you think of uh, more like asynchronous execution you think of uh, pieces of code, maybe individual functions or methods on an object, that when you call them, uh, they don't run synchronously and then return to you as the caller when they are finished, but you just like poke them when you call them and they return immediately. Uh, and then at some later point, whatever you poked will execute. Uh, and you have to find a different way of passing the results across. So usually that's where you use these future things or or, or you, you pass the result again with some asynchronous code execution back to the caller. Uh, there, there are different ways of doing that. But that's sort of a model that, that is more easier to think about and more easier to write down in code apparently. And you can even extend that then to these actor-based languages where you have language automation uh, around these asynchronous invocations uh, where it just is, yeah, from a systems perspective, this is all syntactic sugar. Uh, from a programming language perspective, they would probably disagree and say, oh, there's a lot of work we need to do in the compiler to make this nice syntax. Um, what what but, are you yeah. thinking about? Uh, do you think, are you thinking about a specific system? Like, like async await, which is, something that is coming, I guess, also to C++ at some point, uh, where you just write async uh, as a keyword to your functions, and then they become asynchronous, uh, which means mm. you call them, they return immediately and return you a future, uh, and later uh, you can fetch the result. Uh, and the execution can actually then happen Uh, the, this, the, the runtime environment of your programming language can actually manage the execution for you. So it will put it on some background thread uh, where it will execute at some point in time and then yeah, give you a result. So I think this, the, the earliest example I can think of is boost async. 
in mm -hmm. C++ and now there's all the Rust uh, Tokyo async things that the kids are all excited about. <laughs> yeah, so there's different constructs, but what it always ends up being is yeah that you, you split up your work into little jobs, little asynchronously executed jobs where your runtime can put them on a thread uh, and they, they sort of have a different defined ending so they're really not like a thread that runs potentially forever and always fetches new work from somewhere but the job actually is a fixed amount of work and at some point it's finished uh, and yeah this is this is i think uh, an interesting uh, concept which we could use for scheduling it's it's currently not being done um, because this knowledge is sort of locked up in the application. This is all a runtime thing. This is all happening within the process. So from the point of view of the scheduler, uh, this is all invisible um, because this is something that the application does on the thread, uh, but to the, to the operating system underneath is still an ordinary thread. Uh, uh, the fact that it executes jobs one after each other, uh, the system doesn't see that. For the system, it's just executing something. That's not. It can't. It can't know anything about that. It can start guessing again, but that's not not the right way to go forward. Uh, but what we could have is uh, that we attach metadata to that. That we somehow tell the system when these jobs are more or less important. Uh, and that is actually something that is being explored. Um, so, uh, yeah. I had some research where I explored that uh, and it's actually also, uh, and that's when you mentioned Grand Central Dispatch, uh, in the Apple community it's also, or in the Apple systems world, it's also happening that, this in, that there are information channels now where you can attach uh, metadata to those jobs that the scheduler will actually use to determine what is more important and what is less important. So is there so one problem in writing these um, task execution engines is actually a good name for this I'm not sure uh, is that uh, you have to decide how many background threads you spawn to to work on these tasks and this is a question you cannot really answer without global knowledge about your system so if I start my one application it it does not know. Uh, how loaded the system is. Can it spawn a thread for every CPU? Should it only spawn a thread for four CPUs? Who knows? And uh, does GCD move into a direction where it can make intelligent decisions about that? So, yeah, this is actually one place where they integrated the runtime uh, and the scheduler. So um, there is a communication channel between the GCD runtime and the, the, the scheduler in the kernel. So the runtime is in your process in user space uh, and the scheduler is of course in the kernel uh, and they have some little amount of shared data uh, where the system essentially, the kernel gives the runtime a hint how many uh, threads it should spawn. Because that's now flexible, because it's managed by the runtime, it's not managed explicitly by the programmer, uh, because then you have to 
oblige. Uh, if, if the programmer wants to start a thousand threads, then you start a thousand threads. There's nothing else you can do. Um, but but since this is now runtime managed, uh, the runtime can see, ah, okay, my system only wants to give me one core, so I only start one thread uh, and put all my jobs, execute all my jobs on this one thread and another application might get the remaining 14 cores from the system or something like that uh, and then start uh, correspondingly more threads. Uh, so suddenly the scheduler has a chance of uh, yeah, dynamically mapping uh, how many cores a system can use uh, how many cores an application can use and somehow dynamically assign that at runtime. Uh, of course, it's just a hint, so the application might still do something completely different, but uh, if you're using a behaving runtime, uh, then it would do the right thing and the overall system behavior would improve. In my... <laughs> Now I see a system D task exec D in the future, which my application can ask where Dbus, um, uh, how many threads to spawn. Um, I hope Leonard is not listening. Um, <laughs> or maybe he is, maybe that would be a good thing. I don't know. Uh, I think there's nothing, there's nothing comparable. At least I'm not aware of anything comparable in, in the Linux world. No, I don't think there is. So... Yeah, Apple, of course, has the advantage of completely controlling the entire stack. So they can they can change something in the runtime and can change something in the scheduler and build some custom interface between them uh, to make things like that work. Uh, this is typically harder on other systems to do, uh, at least outside of just experimenting. Um, but yeah, I think it's an interesting development. Uh, and what very recently, well, very recently, I think it's like two or three years old now, uh, they also added uh, that to the jobs, you can also assign a quality of service class. That's how they call it. You might also call it a priority uh, and you, you wouldn't be wrong. Uh, but I guess the term priority was already taken for something else. And so they called it quality of service classes. Um, and I think there's four of them uh, from, from, from high to low, essentially, but they have a semantic. So the semantic usually is that one is directly things going on in the user interface. So things like scrolling uh, that really need to be responsive. Then there's the things that the user generally waits upon. So there's stuff like you click something to open a menu and then at some point the menu should appear. Uh, and then there's, at the very end of the scale, there's background work. So there's work that the user's not even aware of. Uh, and you can actually tag your, your jobs uh, that you give to the GCD runtime. Uh, and this will also end up in the kernel and be used for scheduling. Uh, and so that this is something that is quite nice as an application developer is that you can say, okay, now I'm launching some job here that is really important. Uh, and then at another place in your code, you're launching some job, but th this is just background work. I'm just doing cleanup here. And, and you, you have a way of telling that to the system and the system so, and that, will so, use that. So I'm, um, I'm thinking about how to punish the developers that uh, misuse the interactive uh, 
quality of service class for their background email indexing. So whether there should be like a pop-up application FUBAR makes your computer slow. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Um, I think currently there's nothing being done. Uh, everybody believes. I mean, in the end, there's still some fairness weighing going on in the kernel, I guess. So you will... If you overuse one of the classes, then you will probably your your bandwidth. So how much amount of the CPU you're going to get will probably go down still. Um, so it's more used to decide urgency and less to decide bandwidth. So it's it's not you you can't really get more CPU, but you can get it earlier or later. So I think this is an interesting point because for people to have the feeling that their computer is fast. It just needs to be responsive first and foremost. Yeah, that's that's a very good observation. Uh, so we said about those different uh, goals that, that schedulers could optimize for. Uh, yeah, and one of the one of the misconceptions probably is that that fairness is is a is the most important thing. It is very important certainly because you could have misbehaving applications. And if you have a misbehaving application that tries to monopolize your system and then nothing else can run, then that's definitely a bad situation. Uh, but in the end, as an, as an end user, I'm not really interested whether my system treats all the threads fairly. What I care about is that the thing I'm waiting on, I'm waiting for, that this is done quickly. Fairness for the rest of the system, I don't really care about. I only care about when it's too unfair. So when, when something really doesn't run at all anymore. Um, but urgency seems to be something that, that is also a, yeah, very important, sometimes even more important than fairness. So you need to know when things are really important, when they really need to run right now, and then do that and then immediately drop everything else and switch to that task because if you if you don't do that right now then some audio will drop or some scrolling will lag or some video frame will will stutter and and that's then not a good experience and then once we have sorted out the urgent things then we can go back to fairness so maybe taking a bit more taking it a bit more abstract so how well do you think we're currently doing in this um, in in this domain uh, as a as a profession? So is, is scheduling just working well these days because compute power is is so abundant, or did we actually make tangible uh, theoretical and implementation progress on the quality of of this? So, okay, I need to do the diplomatic answer first. <laughs> So the, the diplomatic answer is there is, of course, a lot of work going on in the real-time community, so in the formal proof community, um, towards making their task models and their scheduling algorithms more practical. Uh, this is still ongoing. This is hasn't reached the end yet, but there are interesting works going on of systems being designed that are supposed to be usable and programmable uh, in a more convenient way than those very limiting task models and still uh, be able to prove the behavior in the end. Um, 
But this is still only a niche topic. So this, this might be something that is of interest to you if you design, I don't know, uh, engines for airplanes or other um, devices like that where people could die if you mess up and you still want to implement some complex algorithm. So the cynicist um, in, in me would say that uh, these things are deployed as uh, as Docker container on the Kubernetes that runs on the airplane control uh, on the airplane control system. I hope not. <laughs> this is this could be your entertainment system, maybe. <laughs> I mean, there there have also been cases where they mix things up and they. Everything was nicely real-time and proven and everything, but then they used something like you just described for the cockpit dashboard. And then, yeah, everything was nice real-time and everything was proven, but the pilot couldn't see anything on the screen anymore. So I think those things did happen. But so... Maybe to, to rephrase it, so I recently benchmarked uh, one of my systems and I used an incredibly old benchmark tool which compared it to a 200 megahertz Pentium something something. And it was a factor in some benchmarks, a factor of 1000 faster, some like ridiculous number. Um, but but like the, the quality of user experience has not increased by that amount. Uh, so there are like nerd websites out there where people compare compare the input latency of of like old computers to input latency of new computers, and it's really sad to see that really ancient word processing systems are very very responsive and new ones are not. Yeah, it's probably a function because those systems usually did one thing at a time, so there wasn't much scheduling going on. Uh, and today we have all kinds of activities and because our scheduler doesn't know better, it just treats everything fairly. And that might mean that the thread that is currently redrawing your word processor is not being scheduled at the right moments in time. So I think we're still lacking the right interfaces, at least on the commodity systems. We're still lacking good interfaces for developers and for also not, not even for the final application developer, but also for the developer of, of GUI frameworks uh, to express to the system what is important and what is not so important so that those things improve, so that the system really does move your cursor when you want your cursor to move. Even if that involves a bit of unfairness for a short amount of time because your word processor gets everything because it's the most important thing right now that's 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 okay that's what it's supposed to do so i think we have weighed fairness a bit too much in our schedulers maybe because these systems came from from yeah at least in 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 the in the unix the unix systems were originally big server systems way back in the in the good old days and their fairness was probably more of an issue that no one could monopolize the system uh, but nowadays if we only have one user then yeah unless there's something malicious going on some application tries to do bitcoin mining on your machine uh, and wants all the cpu for itself uh, so unless it gets really unfair then maybe we should look at urgency a bit more than at fairness
But that, of course, means that the system needs to know what is urgent. And that seems that apparently is one of the biggest problems as to how to tell it. So there's this other trend that um, for everything that has some soft real-time properties like video and audio, there's lots of hardware offloads. So if you look at phones, um, the main CPU is basically just a thing that that submits some job on the video encoding engine and submits a job on the image and uh, decoding engine and uh, it, it's just coordinating those but um, so you basically solved in quotes the problem by, by throwing lots of hardware at it is this the way to go for some things it could be so for those specialized use cases where you really know what your task is, so like decoding a video, playing audio, uh, I think it makes sense to put specialized hardware in there also because it's more energy efficient. Uh, and then the most energy efficient mode of operation is usually the one where you don't copy data around too often. So all your CPU usually does is plug the wires together so that the data flows directly from the decoder to the display uh, and is never touched by anyone else. And so this has benefits for for a lot of things like, like yeah energy usage and and good good timing behavior. But it's not a general solution. There will still be things also on your phone uh, that don't fit that pattern and that still need to be scheduled correctly. It's like yeah like even simple things like if you're scrolling in an application a view that automatically also refreshes while you scroll it. Uh, even simple things like that sometimes lead to the situation that this view is somehow stuttering when you, while you're scrolling it. And that's usually not because your CPU is too slow. Or sometimes it can be, but more often it's the case that the system is deciding to do something else at the wrong moment in time. So how many years do we have to wait until we have this multi-core scheduling figured out? <laughs> how, how long did it take for, for single-core scheduling? Oh, the theory is pretty old for single-core. But yeah, how to put it correctly in a system, in a practical system? Yeah, I don't know. So I think what we need is is a better interface than what we currently have because what we currently have on most systems like Linux and Windows is nothing or well it's some crude priority mechanism uh, at best which no one really uses because it's too crude um, because you could configure your nice level higher if you are the foreground thread or something like that but I don't know that, that gives you a little more bandwidth uh, in the fairness uh, decisions that the system does but uh, still this is not really what i mean when i when i say that the system should look at urgency more than at fairness because urgency really means do it right now not give it a little more weight uh, when you decide about fairness uh, still something else might might have more weight and then the system still runs the wrong thing so if there was an interface to tell the system, this is important, this is not important, please do this, not this, then I think this would help. And we need to propagate this through the entire stack because that's always the problem with, with scheduling and with good real-time behavior is that uh, 
it needs to work for the entire stack. It needs to work in the kernel. It needs to be propagated through some interface. Uh, Userland needs to use the interface correctly. Uh, your programming language, your frameworks need to expose that. And then your language needs to somehow make it nice for you to use so that you have some notion of a job in your in your code where you can say, okay, now this is important and this is not important. So um, now comes a controversial thing. Um, do you think it's a generational problem? problem? So, I've, so I've seen some of the people that... Um, develop the Linux scheduler. And um, let's say they are not in my age category. Um, so they are far younger than you. <laughs> Sorry. Are, are <laughs> no, no. So the most most people I saw there were like, pretty gray. Um, that doesn't mean that they're bad at what they're doing. But they have a very different view on 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 what the world looks like. So there's like, the hardcore old school Unix people wielding their C compiler. And um, then there are all the other people, like the, the, the new developers that pop up that program in, in a completely different world. And there's like this, this disconnect. Um, do you think this, this plays a role in finding a solution that, that actually works for modern workloads? Hmm. I mean, I don't want to blame these people they certainly did a lot of important work on the scheduler uh, because as you said things have improved they just haven't improved as much as we hoped um, but yeah maybe maybe there's actually there's a point to that is that we have completely different systems now most of the systems now are single user and they still run a lot of threads they still run a lot of applications but all those threads belong to the same user so uh, what that user wants is important it's not it's no longer important that every application makes the same amount of progress but that of course is only true for phones and desktops and laptops and all of that stuff. yeah yeah and i guess linux still is mostly used in server situations. I mean, the year of the Linux desktop is always next year still. Um, so maybe that plays a role as well. That's it might, but then again, also the cloud and data center community, they're also hammering on the scheduler or on scheduling problems because they sort of have the same the same issues with it. They also have the problem that they need very low response times to some things, to some of the things are really important because there's an end user waiting for it that just clicked on the buy button on the Amazon page or, well, okay, if you click the buy button, then they have already won. So it's probably <laughs> when you browse their catalog, which is most important to them. When you want to put is, stuff in your cart. Yes, exactly. That that is quick. And, and you really have these problems where they make studies that uh, if your website takes longer than a second to load, then a certain percentage of users will just leave. Uh, and that means they lose money. So they want that website to load within a certain time frame, which means it's a real-time problem. And that real-time problem propagates up to the data center, into the, into the servers there. And... The front end will make a bunch of database requests to 
put together the website that it wants to serve you. And all those database requests now have a deadline attached to them. And because they accumulate, there's lots of requests you need to do to make one page because you need to query all the details of the items that you're supposed to show or something like that. Uh, and so you have, you have latency requirements in the, in the milliseconds again. So it's similar to what we have on the interactive systems. Uh, the reason is completely different, but the timing requirements in the end are very similar. It's all very tight uh, and you don't want any any delays. And, and there's also the point fair, that... Fairness is again not really important. But there the, the tail latency is very important. So uh, we didn't talk about it. It was in the notes, but I think we, we lost it somewhere. Uh, so th this... So, so typically when, when people look at website performance, they, they look at the P99 latency of requests. So like, like how long does it take for 99% of the, of the requests to be served? But if you look at the modern website, it, it shoots off like many HTTP requests <laughs> for a single user interaction. So let's say that for every click, you shoot off like a hundred weird things um, that means that you will very, very likely hit the the one percent tail like uh, the one percent tail latency for many requests. And while this would still look pretty nice in a P ninety nine chart, the user experience would be poor. And I think this this is the challenge. And um, then and then it comes also back to the whole system stack. So you have like a garbage collected language, which use which is fine for like pretty much all requests, but this one request will be the the uh, poor request that triggers the garbage collector. <laughs> and then your tail latency is gone. And at the same time, you also at the at the operating system layer, uh, you want to achieve high density because um, if you execute lots of customer things on your computer that you rent to customers, it's like the cloud business, uh, the more money you earn. So you really, really want to, to have uh, lots of customer things on it. But at the same time, all these customers need to have a good latency experience because they're running these kinds of, of workloads. Yeah, and, so even, even on servers, we have these issues. And there, I think there's no good solution. There's no one really systematically thinking about that it's like lots of tiny systems doing their local decisions with horribly complex system behavior um i guess for a cloud vendor it's also i mean it's even harder because for them fairness actually is still an issue i mean for me as a user in front of my desktop i don't care about fairness at all <laughs> um because if I don't want something to run, I can kill it or, um, but I mean, the cloud vendor cares about fairness because he wants all his customers to have a good experience. He also doesn't want uh, the customers to game the system. So if you um, have, so let's say you start a VM and um, it will land on one of the many hosts and depending on what neighbors you have, you get different performance. So, and you don't want people to to uh, cheat the system by starting uh, many VMs, figuring out which one is the fastest, and then then destroying all the the rest. So this this sucks. Um, 
Uh, but this is this is a problem, and this is something also with modern computers that you cannot fully avoid because what people do on one thread uh, on one CPU of your of your multi-core system uh, affects the other one to some degree. Mm -hmm. So I think what we would want in the end that it's for the long term when you look at it and it. We can now discuss when, at which time scale long term begins. Uh, but in the long term, you want some fairness. So it should average out. The, the different bandwidths should average out in the long run. But in the short term, you really want to look at what's important and don't care so much about fairness. Hmm. And there seems to be no... Well, there are research schedulers that try to balance the two. But most schedulers these days in commodity systems, the only thing they do in terms of urgency is this, is this blocking heuristics that we discussed earlier. Is that if you block often, somehow you're, you're deemed more urgent when, when you unblock. But that's quite crude. And yeah, you can... It works apparently well enough so that most it's, of the time it's good enough. It works well enough that uh, you can't be bothered to look into more complicated things. Yes, yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, but um, I think this is a good point to, to um, go maybe to the point that if you're starting out, if, if you find all of these things fascinating, but uh, want a more um, uh, rigorous introduction in, into the theory and the wealth of knowledge that has been accumulated uh, for like many, many decades. So what would you suggest to someone? Wh where should they start with reading about this topic or starting to, to learn about it? So I think if you want to start with the, to get a look at the theory part, uh, you can either visit some operating systems course at your favorite university because they all like the theory because it's good to teach and you can do nice exam questions about it. Um, but there's also books about it. So there's fundamental real-time system books which tell you all the theoretical underpinnings and the task models. So there's uh, one book is actually, I think it's called Real-Time Systems by Jane Liu which is the book that you usually point to when, when people want to start in real-time systems. Uh, and then you can go arbitrarily deep into some corner, into multi-core or blocking theory or whatever. But I wouldn't really recommend that. I would say whenever you need it, look it up. But it's not something that it, it, it gets increasingly hard to read unless you're really inclined into mathematics and proofing thing, proving things. For the systems part, so the real pragmatic scheduling solutions, there is maybe something in the basic OS books like Tanbaum. He probably tells you something about scheduling somewhere, but it's... It's the basics. It's it's the algorithms from from decades ago where everything started, and yeah, the really simple ones. Unfortunately, all the other developments, I know of no good book where this is summarized. So for the systems community, scheduling really happens in papers or in code, 
in the actual Linux kernel or whatever system kernel. And so there, it's a bit difficult to, to start into this area. And that's, that might also be a reason why uh, the progress is not as good as it could be, uh, because it's kind of hard to to move in from the outside. I mean, if you look at the at the current Linux scheduler code, this is this is terrible. This is, I mean, it's 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 designed to be terrible, of of course, because this is this is the code where all the threads meet. So, like fifty percent of it is locking related. It's not even the scheduling decision itself that you're looking at. Most of what you're looking at is grabbing locks in the right order so that you don't deadlock. This uh, is the decision how to how do I lock all the resources that I need to then make a scheduling decision. And I think the exactly. first one is definitely yeah. more complicated than the second one. Yeah. So um, yeah, not, for me. So, so if you look at the books, um, I, I completely share what what you said. So the The Tannenbaum, from what I remember, and also the design, what is it, design implementation of FreeBSD. Um, it's very simplistic. Um, I mean, it shows you something that will work, but you will not be, you will be very far from cutting edge. Um, and for the things that are actually implemented, the only thing is um, after you watched all the Linux conference talks, you can find um, it's just trying to make sense Uh, of of the code itself, and maybe some uh, Linux Weekly, uh, some LWN articles that give give you wake overviews, but uh, there's there's no way to penetrate this topic without the code. And for like Windows, I think it's hopeless from the outside to learn something beyond the Windows internals book. And um, For the Mac, I'm not sure what's the situation actually on, on Mac OS. I, so there is, of course, API documentation for things like GCD. Uh, but that's not this. I mean, that's ultimately that ends up somewhere in the scheduler as information. But the way GCD and the scheduler talk to each other, that's not documented anywhere. But the code is available. So okay. I think the, the scheduler is part of the open source release and GCD is also open source. So you can look at it, but it's it's the same as on Linux. There's no there's no real documentation about how it works. It's just, just documentation about the API. Hmm. Yeah. So that's it. Um, so I think this is a... Judging from the time, I think this is a good time to 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 wrap it up. What would be your your final words? Do you have any? Is all lost? Are we on a good path? I think we are on a good path, but we're not moving along at the right speed. Probably, so we should reschedule our priorities when thinking about schedulers. Um, <laughs> And I think, or I would hope, and that's that's actually where I get some hope, uh, is what you said is that the new way of programming concurrency, uh, if that really settles down and, and some something emerges, which is kind of like a common model for all, or for, for the important programming languages that people use, uh, 
if that can then be somehow, if it's task-based, then there's a chance of integrating that with the scheduler in a better way as somehow, yeah, the, the macOS and iOS has sort of prototyped this. Uh, I'm not sure that's the end of, of what can be done. Um, but I think there could be some hope from, from that angle. Okay, so I think we will leave it at that. Um, Flo, do you have any last comments? Um, no. <laughs> okay, then um, that's, I would say, our scheduling episode. Thank you, um, Michael, for being here. Uh, this time yeah, we actually talked about me. scheduling. We, we talked a lot about scheduling. I think there's like a second episode about mixed criticality scheduling that I see in our future. Um, and um, in the meantime, we are happy to receive feedback. Um, you can find our contact uh, on syslog.show, syslog with a G. Uh, we have a um, chat room on IRC and Matrix, which you will also find on syslog.show. I will not spell it out this time. I see Flo already laughing. Um, I, I, I laugh because you said syslog with a G and you painted the G in the air. Ah, damn it. <laughs> <laughs> and... Um, yeah, we're also on Twitter. You can find our Twitter handles on, on the website as well. And um, yeah, that's it. And uh, the channel you. that Julian will, uh, was not going to spell out is UKVLY. <laughs> well done, well done. <laughs> <laughs> okay, then uh, have a great time and see you next time. Bye-bye. Thanks, Michael. Thanks, bye.